the Snake River Killer podcast is tracking multiple active and cold cases. This investigation is happening in real time. All individuals named and unnamed in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty by a court of law. This episode contains graphic content and references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Where is Christina White? Who is the suspect? Detective Jackie Nichols believes there may be a connection between Christina White's disappearance, the murders of Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller, as well as the disappearance of Stephen Pearsall. All suspected to have fallen victim at the hands of another. Law enforcement made a critical discovery shortly after the murders of Miller and Nelson. The man that was working in the theater that night lived at the home where Christina White disappeared from. He was very odd himself. He was more creepy, scary odd. She was on the porch and she waved goodbye. And that was the last time I saw her. On the evening of Sunday, September 12, 1982, about one year and two months after Kristen David's murder, a car rolled to a stop outside an old stone Methodist church at 805 Sixth Avenue in Lewiston, Idaho. The old church was then home to the Lewiston Civic Theater and was a hub of creative activity, something of a sanctuary for artists, actors, musicians, and costume designers. The car's passenger door swung open and a young man got out. Having just finished a two-hour shift from his job at TJ's Pantry, a restaurant across the Snake River over in Clarkston, the young man said goodbye to his girlfriend Carol and headed into the building's side entrance. Carol then eased her car back into the avenue and drove off. The young man was 35-year-old Stephen Pearsall, a custodian and artist for the theater, and Carol had dropped him off that night to work on some set designs for an upcoming show. This was about 6.30 p.m., about a half hour before the sun bled out, and the evening was cool and cloudy with temperatures floating at about 51 degrees. Jacket weather. Torrential rains the previous day fell on the Lewiston Roundup, an annual rodeo event that, like the Asotan County Fair, is popular in the area, and those rains had cooled off the otherwise warm valley. Standing at about 5 feet 11, Stephen was trim, weighing a scant 160 pounds. He had a nest of longish dark hair, a mustache, prominent nose, and often wore glasses. That evening, he sported a long-sleeved beige pullover sweater with dark stripes racing horizontally from shoulder to waist, a two-tone brown and beige ski jacket, and khaki-colored pants. Friends and acquaintances who knew Stephen described him in similar terms. He was kind, funny, witty, reserved, talented, harmless, passive, smart. A student at Lewis Clark State College, Stephen seemed universally liked by everyone who associated with him. In what was sometimes a raucous theater crowd, Stephen was a non-drinker and quiet, but enjoyed hanging out with friends. He had lately been without transportation on account of his car being broken down, and it was either parked at his house or a friend's house. The accounts on this point vary. 
So his girlfriend, Carol, who also worked at TJ's Pantry, had been shuttling Stephen here and there to work, glasses, and to and from his apartment at 207 4th Street. As it happens, both Lance and his stepson Clint were also closely associated with the Civic Theater as performers and set designers. And on that night of September 12th, Stephen would have known that Lance was in the theater, either by spotting his 1972 gold Camaro parked outside, or certainly when he entered the Old Stone Church and saw Lance working on one of the set pieces. Stephen and Lance not only knew one another, but they had worked on shows together. Just a few weeks earlier, in fact, they were both involved in the production of Jesus Christ Superstar, which ran through mid-August. Stephen, of course, worked as an artist while Lance played the French horn in the orchestra. That previous May, Stephen and Lance also worked on The King and I. Clint was a part of that show as well as one of the dancers, and here again, Stephen worked as an artist. For his own part, Lance was cast as Crawlahome, and if you aren't familiar with that play... Kralahome is the villain, described variously as evil, strict, selfish, treacherous, villainous, powerful, nefarious, cunning, abusive, hateful, cruel, manipulative, and antagonistic. I call out those descriptors here because the role of Kralahome wasn't the only villain Lance had played or would play at the Civic Theater. During this same window of time, 6.30pm to 7pm, but just a few blocks west, Two stepsisters, 22-year-old Christina Nelson and 18-year-old Brandy Miller, were spotted just outside Christina's apartment at 233 4th Street, just one block away from Stephen Pearsall's apartment. Like Stephen, Christina was an art student at Lewis Clark State College, and according to Fred Scheibe, a former director of the Civic Theater, Christina, like Stephen, had been a custodian and artist for the Civic before Stephen took on those roles. Christina's stepsister, Brandy, was relatively new in town and had just turned 18 three days earlier on September 9th. Whether or not Brandy worked at the Civic Theater is largely unknown, and the answer varies again depending on who you ask. At 8.30 p.m. inside Christina's apartment, the phone rang. It was Christina's boyfriend, Bill. The two of them chatted about their Sunday evening plans. Christina told Bill that she and Brandy were going shopping at Safeway, Bill said he would drop by later. Christina's apartment was tidy and decorated with bohemian flourishes. She adorned her walls with her own charcoal sketches, ink drawings, and other original works. A stack of school books stood on her kitchen table, along with a few novels. More books lined another bookcase, and on a separate shelf sat paperback copies of Gary Trudeau's classic Doonesbury series. Her cat, Tigger, prowled around the apartment while fish swam in a small tank turning at sharp angles this way and that while the tank's pump motor hummed in the background. Because it was Sunday, she and Brandy had been doing laundry and piles of clean and dried clothing occupied portions of her bed. On the wall above her bed hung a menagerie of fashionable and expressive hats and her only form of transportation, a 10-speed bicycle, which she pedaled to classes and her job at the Skipper Seafood Restaurant, was parked inside the apartment. Christina was fiercely intelligent, having made the president's academic achievement list that previous February for earning a GPA between 3.7 and 4.0, and the dean's list that previous June. She was a serious student, and beautiful too, with long blonde hair often worn in a ponytail, friendly eyes, and a winsome smile. Christina was slim, standing only 5 feet 1 inch, and scaling in at a brief 120 pounds. 
Just a measure shorter than Christina, Brandy wore a full head of brown hair, had coffee-colored eyes, and was wearing blue jeans and a multicolored poncho-styled sweater, hip-length with a drawstring at the bottom. Some accounts say that Brandy, like Stephen and Christina, was also a student at Lewis Clark State College. But again, to me, this is an unknown. What is known, however, is that Christina and Brandy, who, despite being a few years apart in age, were very close. At about 9 p.m., a half hour after Christina's 8.30 phone call with Bill, Carol returned to the Civic Theater, pulling up in her car to collect Stephen. Their co-workers at TJ's Pantry were throwing a going-away party for one of the staff members, and he and Carol planned on attending. At about this same time, 9 to 9.30 p.m., Lance claims to have taken a break from working on the set, slipping out of the theater and into his 1972 gold Camaro, which he drove down to the Red Baron Pizzeria to, in his words, have himself a couple of beers. Inside that pizzeria, a television set was tuned to Channel 4, which was then airing John Carpenter's 1980 horror movie, The Fog. Also, at about the same time, 9 p.m. to 9.30 p.m., Christina and Brandy set out for Safeway, which, in 1982, closed daily at 10 p.m. On their way out, Christina left a note for Bill, her boyfriend, on the door saying they were going to the store and they would be right back. Bill, however, fell asleep at his place during the television program's 60 Minutes and never made it back over to Christina's. From Christina's apartment, the two of them likely walked east along 3rd Street, about a block and a half before angling north, taking a shortcut that Christina knew. This route skirted Pioneer Park before dropping swiftly down to the valley floor where city lights winked in the dark along the Snake River. This shortcut to the Safeway supermarket drew them right alongside the Red Baron Pizzeria. And here is the key. It remains unclear if they ever made it to the grocery store because it was likely along this path that the two of them vanished into thin air, either on their way to the store or on their way home from the store. Lance claims to have stayed at the Red Baron until 11 p.m. when, he noted, the movie The Fog had ended. At that point, he said he returned to the theater to finish working on the set. At about midnight, Carol and Stephen, having left the party at TJ's pantry, returned to the Lewiston Civic Theater. Stephen often used the washer and dryer in the theater to do his laundry, and he wanted to get some clothes washed that night and practice his clarinet between loads. Stephen got out of the car and likely said goodbye to Carol. One, possibly two other people who were out walking that night and who knew Stephen happened to see him going into the building. Again, the accounts on this point vary. However, a Lewiston patrolman who was just then driving by also saw Stephen enter the theater and made a note of it. Carol then drove away. So including Carol, three, possibly four people witnessed Stephen walk into the Civic Theater at midnight on September 12, 1982. Nobody, however, ever saw him leave. So Stephen vanishes from within the theater where Lance had been working, and Christina and Brandy vanish somewhere near the Red Baron where Lance had been having a couple of beers and watching a horror movie. That, for the most part, gives you the general context and framework of events on the evening of September 12th as we understand them. And look, I get it. There's a lot going on here with so many names and places and timestamps, and I know it's a lot to track just by listening. But I will return to this timeline, slow things down, and take a closer look, so that should help. 
but you can also go to our website, snakeriverkiller.com, click on resources timelines, and you can find a timeline of these events and the movements of these key subjects. You can also find photos of Christina, Brandy, and Stephen under resources, victims. As I began establishing this timeline, it felt fairly concrete and clear, but the more I leaned into it, the less concrete and clear it became. For one thing, everything I lay out in this timeline is by and large based on newspaper reporting that was done right around the time of the events, but in my subsequent digging, I have found a few discrepancies, some of which I have already alluded to here, and others which I'll get to. But first, I want to turn to an interview I did with someone who was a central figure in the civic theater during this time period, though he left shortly before the disappearances. My name is David Blaskowitz. I was uh, a technical director at the civic theater on and off from 1981-82 till about 1986. One of the things I wanted to talk to Dave about was Stephen Pearsall, because he knew him. But the other reason I wanted to talk about Stephen is because, like Christina White, he's never been found. This fact led police early on to consider him a potential suspect in the Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller cases, though now they believe that he may have potentially walked in on Lance in the middle of a double homicide and was killed himself. In my conversations with Clint, he has more than once nodded in the direction of Stephen. Not overtly, but he's sort of softened the ground for the idea, which I don't buy, not for a minute. Because from everything I've learned about Stephen, he just doesn't fit the profile. And that's what I wanted to talk to Dave about. Yeah, with Stephen, we didn't really know each other for a long time, but in the short time that I knew him, I could look into his eyes and I saw total compassion, total empathy for people, uh, a love of art and music and the world around him. And he, he always reminded me of Gandhi. He, he just was so passive, so, you know, nonviolent. I never heard him raise his voice. All of our conversations were always in, in kind of hushed tones because he just, he didn't put himself out there to be anything more than this meek, mild person. In one of the documentaries on these cases, Dave mentions how with Stephen, he never saw it in his eyes. It, in this context, being evil, lack of conscience, the capacity to kill, whatever you want to call it. So I asked him if he ever saw it in Lance's eyes. I asked because it seemed like a logical question to ask, but also because when I look at photos of Ted Bundy, Gary Ridgway, Dennis Rader, or any other serial killer, I see something in their eyes that is cold and steely, a kind of inhuman flinty stare, but also a kind of vacancy where empathy should reside. The opposite, in other words, of what Dave saw in Stephen's eyes. You know, now that you mention it, you see so many pictures that focus on his eyes. Um, now that I look at it and think about it, he kind of had kind of crazy eyes. But he was such a chameleon when it came to his persona. He really imagined himself as a very chivalrous man. Uh, when it came to women, he was, I mean, he would kind of click his heels and bow to them. And, you know, on occasion, if they would allow him, he would kiss their hands. Every time he talked about his wife, it was with Uh, you know, she's the most wonderful person in the world. And he would say that she was his queen. You know, I'm looking back on it now and yeah, it could be a really good cover, but at the time it was just like, well, you know, that's the way he was, you know, that's the edge of himself. I want to come back to the timeline, 
and specifically Lance's timeline, because his whereabouts and movements are at the very center of these cases. To that end, I'm going to be throwing a lot of detail your way, but I believe it's necessary in order to fully explore what may or may not have happened that night. Let's begin at 9 p.m., when Lance said he drove to the Red Baron to have a couple of beers. According to his police interview, he stayed to watch the horror movie, The Fog. He also stated that he left at 11 p.m. when the movie had ended. Also, in his interview with police, he stumbled on what to call The Fog. First, he called it a movie, then he corrected himself and called it a show, as in a television show, and then corrected himself again and called it a movie. That might not mean anything, but it stuck out to me for reasons I will get to. And the more I think about him watching that movie, The Fog, the stranger I find it. First, who sits at a pizza place alone to watch a two-hour horror movie? And second, why, when he apparently had more work to do at the theater, did he waste two hours watching The Fog on a Sunday night? Curious as to how long the movie ran, I checked IMDB and found that The Fog's total runtime is 1 hour 31 minutes. So with commercials, it is probable that the movie ended at 11. However, based on information Detective Nichols had found, she said that the movie got over closer to midnight. Now at first I found this timeline in conflict with the TV listings that I found in the September 12th issue of the Lewiston Morning Tribune, meaning that what I found suggested that it got over at 10.31 at the earliest or 11 at the latest depending on commercial time, so not midnight. However, on closer inspection, I discovered that nothing else was scheduled to air on Channel 4 between its 9 o'clock airing of The Fog and the news which aired at midnight. My conclusion then is that the network showed The Fog twice, back to back, likely with commercials. You can see a clipping of the TV listings on our website under Resources Clues. How, if at all, does this affect Lance's story that he left when the movie ended at 11? I'm not sure it does. After all, he may not have even watched the movie, but just noticed that it happened to be playing, and that it started at 9, and he assumed it was a two-hour movie, which is why he may have stumbled on whether or not it was a movie or a television show. In other words, he may have mentioned the movie only to provide himself an alibi for the 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock window, but the supposed cover that the movie might have given him is thin because it requires law enforcement and us to take him at his word that A, he actually watched it, and B, he actually watched it all the way through. That said, it's important to try to establish when he left the Red Baron, but even more important is establishing how and by what means he may have crossed paths with Christina and Brandy. There are a few potential scenarios for when he may have spotted them either through a window of the pizza place or on his way out. In the first instance, he may have watched them walk by and go on into the store to do their shopping, at which point he may have settled his tab and literally waited for them to come back out, and that's when he left the pizza place, putting himself right in their path. And that's when he may have offered them a ride. It's important to remember that because Christina worked at the theater, she would have known or at least been familiar with Lance, and therefore would have felt comfortable accepting a ride. So he wasn't just some rando prowling the streets in his gold Camaro, and therefore it would have been conceivable that he said, hey, you two want a ride. And then once they were in the car, he may have said, oh, I have to go by the Civic Theater really quick, and you should come in and see this thing I'm working on. It's very cool, etc., etc." So that's one scenario. Another is that he may have actually been on his way out the door from the Red Baron and really did accidentally bump into them on their way home. 
But that means he would have had to hatch this plan to get them to the Civic Theater to murder them and get rid of the bodies all in the moment, which I guess that's plausible, but doesn't seem likely. On the other hand, if he'd watched them walk by on their way to go shopping, he would have had maybe up to a half an hour or so to form his plan, pay his tab, and literally wait for them to leave so he could place himself coincidentally right in their path. Now look, I know, this is all conjectured speculation, of course, but it does more or less reflect the general consensus that law enforcement has reached based on the information they have. Now, departing from the speculative side of things, I want to come back to what we know, or at least what Lance has told police about his movements that night. And while I know that those are two different things, what we know versus what he said, his interview is part of the record and therefore bears scrutiny. So again, according to Lance's later interview with police, after leaving the Red Baron, he returned to the theater to work some more on the set. Shortly after his return, he had at some point moved his Camaro from the front of the theater around back so he could, quote, load his tools, end quote. He also said that he had gone up into the loft attic area where much of the curtain rigging and lighting systems were. While up in the loft, Lance said he had taken a fall, having fallen through the lath and plaster between ceiling joists. In one account, he said that when he fell, he had straddled a beam. He also said he injured his finger. Lance then notes how he went back downstairs into the green room in the theater's basement. He told police that he had, quote, a medium case of the shakes, end quote. So he just sort of sprawled out on one of the couches in the green room and dozed off. And because he was sleeping, he never heard Stephen come in at midnight. He also claimed that while sleeping, he later heard the phone ringing, but he didn't get up to answer it. Lance then says he accidentally slept until 5 a.m., adding how it was, and I quote, one of those oops things, end quote. And it was after 5 a.m., he said, that he started for home, but then realized that Pat, his wife, wouldn't have been there anyway because she had to go to work at 5, so he went back to the Civic Theater. In other words, Lance is more or less unaccountable from 9 p.m. when Stephen left the Civic Theater until around 5 the next morning. That's a massive window of time, and it shouldn't be overlooked or discounted. But going off what he told police, I have to say that two things really stick out to me, and they're markers that you should pay attention to as well. The first is when Lance said he moved his car around back to load his tools. That is important for a couple of reasons. First, the back of the Civic Theater has a door, but more specifically, there are two very large windows at ground level and two tall fencing panels that flank the windows, creating a secure space where you could back a vehicle in and be relatively shielded by the cover those fencing panels provide. You can find a picture of this space on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under resources, case photos. It is the belief of local law enforcement that he supplied this bit of information in case someone had seen him move his car around back and he would have to have an explanation for that move. The second thing that is important to call your attention to is this business about him starting for home at 5 a.m. but instead turning around and returning to the Civic Theater, which is absolutely baffling on its face. Law enforcement believed that he injected this detail in case someone saw him coming back to the theater at 5 a.m. In other words, they think he left the theater late at night or in the early hours of the next day to dispose of the bodies, only to return to the theater around 5 a.m. to do any final cleanup. Also, if he heard the phone ringing and hadn't planned on staying the night at the theater, wouldn't the phone have woken him up with a kind of start? As in, uh-oh, I better get home or call my wife and let her know that I'm on my way home? 
In other words, if he wasn't supposed to be staying the night there and he was awake enough to hear the phone and awake enough to choose not to get up and answer it, why did he remain on the couch? It makes no sense to me. Anyway, that is his story, as improbable, confounding, and inexplicable as it is. Of course, on the night of September 12, 1982, what Lance may not have counted on was Stephen's return trip to the Civic Theater to do his laundry after attending the going-away party at TJ's Pantry over in Clarkston. And when Stephen walked into the theater at midnight, what is it he would have walked into? Again, it's very likely that he had unwittingly walked into a very grisly and gruesome crime scene, and as a result, he too was murdered. This is the prevailing theory among some in law enforcement and others who have followed this case closely. As I've mentioned, Stephen's body has never been found, so law enforcement, despite what they suspect and truly believe, they have to keep Stephen in the column of potential suspects. For my own part, I just don't believe Stephen was anything other than a victim. But to explain how I've reached that conclusion and why my conclusion casts more suspicion on Lance, I need to walk you through two timelines and scenarios, the first dealing with Stephen and the second dealing with Lance. Again, you'll have to bear with me here as you are about to get a lot thrown at you, and for that I apologize. But look, it's important to really stress test these timelines and draw some bright lines here. Looking at Stephen's timeline, this is what we know and what we can deduce. Stephen was working at TJ's pantry from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Whether Carol was working the same shift or not, that's unknown. What is known is that she gave him a ride to the theater at around 6.30 or 7 p.m. Carol then returns to the theater at 9, fetches Stephen, and the two of them drive back to Clarkston for the going away party at TJ's pantry. The party goes late and Carol and Stephen leave shortly before midnight. Then, at 12 o'clock, Carol drops Stephen back off at the Civic Theater to do his laundry and practice his clarinet. She then says goodbye and drives off. My question is, where in that timeline do Christina and Brandy factor in? Because when they were walking to Safeway between 9 and 9.30 p.m., Stephen and Carol were heading across the river to attend the party at TJ's Pantry. Lance, however, was right there, at the Red Baron Pizzeria, by his own admission. In other words, there is only one person who is within close proximity to Brandy and Christina, and it wasn't Stephen. The only window of time that Stephen wasn't with Carol, wasn't at work, and therefore could have done something nefarious, was after midnight, after Carol had dropped him off at the theater. But even that is a major stretch. Why? Well, because A, how did the girls cross paths with Stephen or he with them at midnight at the Civic Theater? We know they vanished between 8.30 p.m. when Christina talked with Bill and 10 p.m. when Safeway closed. How do we know that? Because we know that they never made it back to Christina's apartment from the store because her note for Bill was still on the door the next day. But let's say for sake of argument that for some reason they were out walking by the Civic Theater at midnight on Sunday right as Carol was dropping Stephen off. Did he see them walking by and invite them in? If this were the case, I would imagine the patrol officer, the witness or witnesses, and maybe even Carol would have also seen Christina and Brandy. B, even if they had been by the Civic Theater that night, and even if Stephen Pearsall had coerced them inside, is he just going to go ahead and kill them with Lance in the building? C. If so, this would suggest that Stephen and Lance were somehow in on it together, which makes no sense because why would Stephen go missing but Lance wouldn't? If they were both responsible, you'd think they'd both flee town. 
D, let's say that Steven somehow killed the girls on his own without Lance because Lance was asleep in the green room. How is he going to get rid of the bodies? He's without transportation. His car is broken down. Is he really going to kill two women, leave their corpses in the theater, go find a car, and risk coming back to the crime scene so he can drag the bodies out of the theater past Lance who was asleep on the couch? His only other alternative would be to phone Carol and say, look, I killed these two girls. Can you come back and help me get rid of their bodies and then help me disappear? And on the latter point, you should know that when investigators searched Stephen's apartment, they found his wallet, car keys, uncashed paychecks, totaling between $200 and $300. The amounts are foggy as they vary depending on the source. Not only that, but evidently Stephen had only between $10 and $12 on his person that night. Who skips town leaving behind everything, including their wallet, keys, uncashed checks? Also, there are two other things that piqued the curiosity of law enforcement. One thing that was found and one thing that was missing. On searching the Lewiston Civic Theater, police found Stephen's clarinet on the cover of the orchestra pit. Family members, friends, and anyone who knew Stephen knew full well that he would never leave his clarinet behind. The second thing that caught the attention of police was that Stephen's laundry and duffel bag were nowhere to be found. The clarinet was on my list of things to discuss with Gloria, so I wanted to check in with her. We know that his clarinet was found either in or near the orchestra pit. Mm -hmm. And it's my understanding that Stephen would not have left his clarinet behind. You know, I, I talked to his sister. I'm in contact with her quite often. And she has the clarinet. And so she allowed me to see it and to photograph it, which I put on the Lewis Clark Valley Serial Killer Facebook page, because I think that it speaks a lot. That clarinet was everything to him. He would have not, music and art. I, it's hard to explain, Brandon, but you know, he wouldn't have left it. You know, she she knew her brother. So I think that's an important part that needs to be looked at. It's like, this speaks for Stephen's character. His clothing, however, was not found. His duffel bag. His laundry. Yeah, his laundry. He had it in a duffel bag. That has never been found. You know, when I was talking with, with Dave last night, I asked him about the clarinet. And, and Dave said, he said, you know, Stephen didn't have a lot of worldly possessions. And the ones that he had, he cherished. And they were part of his identity. So to yes, leave that behind. Yes, it was behind, an appendage of him. Right. You wouldn't leave part of your identity behind just mm -hmm. like willy-nilly. That just doesn't make any sense. Ironically, of all the people in this case, Lance, Stephen, Brandy, and Christina, only Stephen has a series of rock-solid alibis. And only Stephen can be accounted for steadily from 4 p.m. until midnight. Everyone else's timelines are filled with holes, gaps, and unknowns. Again, the central question I have here regarding Stephen is how do we place Christina and Brandy in geographical proximity and time to Stephen? The original thinking was that they may have walked from Christina's apartment toward the Civic Theater on their way to the grocery store. But now that thinking has changed with some in law enforcement to the more probable shortcut that Christina knew which took them by the Red Baron. This is most likely the route they would have taken if for no other reason than Christina left a note on her door for Bill that read, Bill went to the store, be right back. She was expecting Bill, which means that she wouldn't have taken a long and roundabout way to the store. And Safeway closed at 10 p.m. You can find a clipping of the Lewiston store hours from 1982 on our website under resources, clues. 
Therefore, she would have taken the most direct route, the shortcut, which makes it fairly certain that they were both close in time and place to Lance and the Red Baron Pizzeria, but not the Civic Theater. Also, when it comes to Stephen, let me say this. Remember how I brought up the philosophical concept of Occam's Razor in Episode 4? The concept based on the premise that, of many competing and complicated theories, the simplest one is to be preferred. Yeah, well that applies here too. In order for Stephen Pearsall to have been the culprit in these murders, an increasingly complex and unlikely set of conditions would have to be met. Therefore, logic alone says he could not have been responsible for these crimes. On the other hand, we can look at a simpler explanation. For instance, we do know of one individual who was in geographical proximity to the girls between 9 p.m. and 10 p.m. that night. We also know that this same individual was the only one who had a car at the theater late that evening. We also know that he moved his car from the front of the theater to the back at some point, and we know that only one individual has a dubious alibi from as early as 9 p.m. until 5 a.m. the following day. When I clock his movements, according to his police interview, the story falls apart. For sake of argument, let's say it took him six minutes to settle his tab at the Red Baron, exit the establishment, get into his car, start it up, and drive back to the theater. This would have him arriving at the Civic Theater at about 11.06. He then kills the engine, exits the car, and heads into the theater where he begins working. Let's say he's working for 25 minutes and then decides to call it a night. That puts the clock at about 11.31. Then he heads back outside, gets into his car, fires it up, swings around to the rear of the building, backs in, kills the engine, and heads back into the theater. Let's allot two minutes for those actions. Now, at around 11.33, he decides to head up into the loft, and for this, we'll allow him four minutes to get up there, shuffle around, doing whatever it was he was purportedly doing, and to fall through the ceiling. It's now 11.37. Let's give him two minutes to hoist himself up from the beam, gather himself, dust off the plaster, check for wounds, etc., and exit the loft, and another two minutes to find his way to the basement green room, wounded. It's now 11.41 p.m. Injured and hopped up on adrenaline, he sprawls out on the couch. Now let me ask you this, how long should we give him to doze off after injuring himself and experiencing what he called a medium case of the shakes? Even if we were conservative and said he fell asleep five minutes later, that would be 11.46 p.m. That means he would have been only asleep a maximum of 14 minutes before Stephen came through the side entrance into the same room where Lance claimed to have been in such a deep sleep that he didn't hear Stephen come in. There are so many holes in this story that it borders on the absurd. Let's begin with his sole purpose of going back to the theater. He said he wanted to go back to continue to work. In the scenario I just laid out, he would have only worked for 25 minutes, and within that span of 25 minutes, he decided to move his car around back to load his tools, presumably because he was calling it a night. Why go back at 11 p.m. on a Sunday to work for only 25 minutes? hardly seems worth the effort at such a late hour. And again, why waste two hours watching the fog if you had work to do? Okay, it's conceivable that he worked longer than 25 minutes, but this possibility doesn't help his story. In fact, it torpedoes it. Why? Because for every minute he would have spent working, it shaves off a minute from the time he was allegedly asleep. In other words, if he had worked for 35 minutes and not 25, then that means he would have only been asleep for 4 minutes and not 14 by the time Stephen came in at midnight. His entire story is specious at best and utter nonsense at worst. At this point, I want to dive back into my conversation with Dave and some of the insights he has on Lance during this period. 
probably the, the first situation that I met Lance. I have a friend of mine at Lewis Clark State College. He was like the senior technical theater student. And uh, when I came in, he was going to leave and go over to the Civic Theater. And so he was kind of training me to take over for him at the college. And in fact, he actually talked me more into going over to the Civic Theater than going with the college. And him and I became really good friends. And he also was involved with the college's entertainment, you know, uh, concerts and, and other things that they would bring into the college. And uh, we went up to a uh, festival in Spokane where artists would come and perform for all of these different colleges so they can sign them up to perform at their college. And uh, he needed a crew, and so he brought me on, and uh, Lance was one of the guys, the first guy I met there. And so we spent oh, a weekend up in Spokane doing all this stuff for this uh, showcase. And in meeting him for the first time, very cerebral, very uh, intelligent, well-mannered. I don't ever recall hearing him swear or, or really lose his temper or anything. So he, he was my friend's friend and so then we became friends then we started working together at the civic theater he was just an actor at the time and then he was also doing when they do a musical he played the french horn and he would be in the orchestra whenever we were doing shows you know after every show we'd go out local haunts the bars and stuff and we had one particular place that the theater people kind of hung out at and where was that it was in downtown Lewiston, and I think it was called O'Brien's. Oh, okay. It wasn't the Red Baron. No, the Red Baron was a pizza place, and it was just down the hill from the Civic Theater. So that was a convenient place, but the Red Baron only served pizza and beer. So if you wanted any hard liquor, we went over to O'Brien's. And... Okay. But yeah, we, we did stop into the Red Baron, uh, you know, a bit, but I, I wouldn't say as much as we did O'Brien's. Uh, there was also a couple other bars that were near O'Brien's downtown that we would go out to. You know, in, in all the time, and I've been asked this question a lot as to, you know, what he was like in, in thought when it came to a lot of different things. We didn't discuss a lot about that. I don't remember talking too much at all about politics or sociological things, or it was mainly just, you know, we hung out, we did theater for the period of time, lived with him. We liked to play a lot of board games. He was into Dungeons and Dragons, but I wasn't. So I never played that with him. Wait, did you, sorry, did you say you lived with him? Yeah. Oh, okay. For how long and where was that? Um, I helped him build the dome homes. Did um, you live there? Yeah, I lived with him. You know, it was a big place. It was, uh, he was with all three floors. I was almost 5,000 square feet. There was like three bedrooms in the basement. And then there was his den on the main floor. And then there was another bedroom on the main floor. Then the kitchen and living room were on the main floor. And then up in the loft area uh, was another bedroom, was the master bedroom with bath and everything. That, that is, once I mentioned that I live with him, that's always the big question. And it's like, I, I want to say that he was unemployed, but he was like, he was house husband because his wife had a really good job. I, I think he was partially disabled. I, don't, I seem to remember something from, you know, his military discharge. And I know that he tried to go to college for a little while, but all the time that I knew him, I never remember him having a job. So we're getting a lot of information from Dave about Lance. And the one thing that jumped out at me, as you could no doubt tell, was the fact that he actually lived with Lance. 
and that he helped him build the dome houses. Now, the dome homes, which I've mentioned before on the show, are two geodesic structures that look like two halves of a giant golf ball split in half and connected by a five-car garage. And I will get to those houses and the general weirdness surrounding them in a later episode. But the other thing that Dave mentions is that Lance liked to play Dungeons and Dragons. And for context, they were building the dome houses in 1984. That role-playing game was then both wildly popular amongst a crowd of mostly basement-dwelling teenagers and roundly condemned by Christian conservatives like the Christian Life Ministries who wrongly saw it as the gateway to devil worship and every other evil that was, in their view, plaguing society. Recall the satanic panic of the 1980s mentioned in episode 4. I bring this up again because you will recall that rumors still abound about Lance's purported involvement in a satanic cult. While I do not believe he was involved in any such thing, especially given that such groups were largely a figment of the imagination of Christian conservatives, I do think the game appealed to him for its role-playing features and perhaps because of the controversy the game courted at the time. Again, speculation, but it's something that keeps cropping up. And on the subject of rumors about Lance, I wanted to ask Dave if and when he ever started hearing about how Lance might have been connected to these cases and these crimes. I would say that I I never heard any rumors and I never heard any real discussion. When people were at the theater and we were focused on doing shows, we didn't really talk about too much outside of that, outside of the theater. As far as any kind of speculation, I don't recall any of the people that I know that knew Lance that speculated anything. He didn't really come into kind of a real suspect, I would say, until much, much later, uh, during the time of shortly after the disappearance of the two girls and Stephen from the Civic. I didn't hear anybody talk about it. I was actually out of town. I was living in Boise. I'd left Lewiston at the end of the summer of 82 after Jesus Christ Superstar. And I went down to Boise. Uh, A friend of mine down there was the technical director at the uh, local uh, pavilion, uh, basketball arena. They did concerts and things. So I went down there and I attended BSU for a short time. And then I came back because that's when I got the phone call from uh, a friend of mine up in Lewiston asking me if Stephen was with me because he had disappeared and everybody thought because him and I were friends that he was coming down to visit me. And so they thought he was down there with me. And I said, no, he's not. And I said, well, what's going on? And he said, well, he disappeared from the Civic Theater. That's when I really started to find out what happened because I wasn't there uh, in town to hear anything until I got back. And then I was interviewed by the police. And, you know, and I'd I'd heard that Lance was interviewed. Then I heard all the story about, uh, you know, he was asleep in the the basement and, uh, you know, while all this was going on. And it wasn't really talked about until the uh, the two girls' bodies were discovered outside of Kendrick. But even then, I never heard anybody kind of put Lance with that situation. I continued to work with him, and I did a play <clears throat> with him in 85, I think. And uh, I cast him in a play called Footlight Frenzy and worked really hard with him on that show. And uh, he was one of the main characters in that. And I remember there was a, a young lady that I had cast in one part and she was single, Claudette Volova. He had confessed to me that he was having an affair with her. And then he said he was going to break it off and, and you know, uh, because I knew he was married and Pat was my friend. And then it was after the show was over and uh, a short time after that, 
that's when I found out that she committed suicide and that he was the one to find the body. And I'm just like, well, this is just, you know, <laughs> I had a lot of things going on in my life, so I didn't really dwell on it too much. But, you know, looking back on it now, it was just like, there seemed to be all these little markers and things. And it was like really, really coincidental or beyond coincidental. Okay, some background here. Claudette Volova's case is something I will cover on its own. Because while her death was officially ruled a suicide, and while she was known to have struggled with her mental health, there are oddities and peculiarities surrounding her death that raise, at least for me, a number of questions, especially given that Lance was the one to have found her body. So more on that later. But beyond Lance's role with Claudette and Footlight Frenzy, he played a number of darker roles, as I've previously mentioned, and that was also something I wanted to get Dave's take on. My understanding is there was a little bit of a controversy when Lance took the role of Jonathan Brewster in Arsenic and Old Lace. Can you speak to that at all? Uh, yeah, I was in Arsenic and Old Lace. I don't know what the controversy was. I never heard anything as it being a problem or his portrayal yeah. of the character was very dark. I mean, just in the way that it was originally portrayed in the movie, I think he got a lot of influence there. And I think he really got into the idea of playing the bad guy. Right. And quickly, for those that don't know, Jonathan Brewster in Arsenic and Old Lace is essentially a psychopath, right? Who has several right. murders under his belt. Uh, when Lance took on that role, it's my understanding that some people, maybe outside of the outer orbit of the Civic Theater, were a little unsettled um, that he he took that role and maybe excelled in it. But that is hearsay. That's third party coming to me. So I wanted to ask somebody that was you know a little bit closer to the center of those activities and, and that time. I mean, I could see that the character really for his height, you know, that that's the other thing too, is he was perfect for the role and the idea that uh, Dr. Einstein was so much shorter than him, uh, mm. Jeremy Lamont's, you know, and the two of them playing off each other, Lance being six foot six and Jeremy just a little bit over five foot, five foot two. But he did like to kind of use that. Um, he once in a while kind of show this scary face where he would take off his glasses, you know, to kind of show people that, you know, he's got this versatility in his acting where he can be meek, mild manner, and all of a sudden you don't, you don't want to make me angry. And so. For the past couple of months, our associate producer, Paul Dale, has been doing some research on the various roles Lance has played and the plays in which he acted back in this period. So I wanted to bring him on the show to discuss what he found and to get his thoughts. In particular, behind these three cases, these two murders and the disappearance of Stephen Pearsall, there's the spectacle of the theater itself, right? And I'm wondering, and because Lance was actively involved, they all were in various degrees, but Lance in particular was involved with the, with the theater. What can we learn, or is there anything that we can learn by looking at the plays themselves that he was a part of? You've been digging into this a little bit, and I'm just wondering kind of what you have, what, what has stood out to you? Not so much the the plays, I think, as much as the the roles he played. You know, the the story about 
and, and I know I keep coming back to this, but the story about arsenic and old lace just keeps coming back. And he played uh, Jonathan Brewster. Yep, yep. And what do we know about that character in that play? Jonathan yeah. was a serial killer. Again, Lance did not write Arsenic and Old Lace. Real quick, I just want to jump in here for context. One of the things Paul and I were talking about and have been talking about, and which I had brought up with Dave, was the story that some people in the LC Valley were unnerved by the fact that Lance took on the role of Jonathan Brewster, a serial killer. But Fred Scheibe, the director, saw it a different way. Uh, Fred essentially said something along the lines of, this is what people think already, and you playing this role isn't going to change that. And then mm. were to believe that uh, he was the, the thespian that, that it seems, then you know, this, was, this was an appealing role to him. For your average person, it is a little more fun to play the bad guy, I think. I, I don't think that signals anything nefarious necessarily. They're just they're just often you know the more fun roles to play. Yeah, they're more dynamic. I mean, that's where the audience's attention is naturally you know going to turn to you know. So it does stand out a little bit that a suspected serial killer would take on the role of a serial killer. Uh, you could go either way with that, I suppose. Uh, you know, there's there's sort of a sense of discretion that <laughs> that you might say well you know maybe I, I do want to play this role but maybe it's not the best idea in in such a small town where I'm under suspicion but the flip side could also be that well I'm innocent and I want to play this role and you know what the director has said to me uh, is true whether I do this or not is not necessarily going to sway anybody's opinion one way or another there are so many things in this case, in these cases, actually, Paul, that you can flip it either way. And you just pinpointed that in this particular situation. If Lance is innocent, or if he was innocent of these crimes, why shouldn't he play this role, right? Like, why not? Of course, if he is guilty of these crimes, you can read that in a totally different way. One interesting thing just again goes to his character his character, not the character he played. And right. it actually was something that Dave, he made an interesting observation that uh, that Lance almost liked to play this sort of dual role in his regular life, uh, you know, almost like the Clark Kent Superman. He mentioned the glasses and he would, you know, the, take off the glasses and give the evil glare almost. This is my darker side. What both Paul and Dave are touching on is something that shouldn't be overlooked. All throughout these cases, there has been this continuing theme of Lance's potential duality. His chameleonic persona, his posture as the gentleman scholar, standing in stark relief against a gathering storm of accusations and circumstantial evidence of the most horrific crimes imaginable. And all along, I've been saying that it's important to look at the small things in his life as they can potentially reveal his mind at work and perhaps even a tell. This really struck me after my interview with Dave and Paul when I reached back to Dave with a follow-up question about the dome houses. I wrote, Hey Dave, quick follow-up. You mentioned that Lance had a den in the dome houses. Did you ever go into his den? If so, what was it like? What kinds of things did he have in there? Etc. Thanks. Dave wrote back, sure, I helped build it. 
He wanted to make the walls as soundproof as he could. We wove insulation between the studs. The wall was about six inches thick. He had lots of books and a stereo system, Dungeons and Dragons figures, a desk and an office chair. It looked like the den of a well-to-do intellectual." End quote. I have to say my eyes widened on this detail and I wrote back, why did he want it soundproofed? The dome house had really good acoustics. He was concerned about bothering Pat and the rest of the house. I guess I never thought this to be something sinister. End quote. Something sinister. His words, not mine. I don't know about you, but I find that detail, the soundproof den, the six-inch thick walls, the insulation woven studs, not only odd, but vaguely frightening. Why do you need a soundproof den? According to Dave, Lance allegedly wanted a soundproof den so he wouldn't bother his wife Pat or anyone else in the house. That seems to be a fairly flimsy rationale for something that would have been an added expense and more work. Besides, the more I learn about Lance, the more it seems that everything he does appears to be in the service of others when in fact his actions are almost always in service just to himself. Again, you see that potential duality in his character, the well-to-do intellectual with a soundproof den. This kind of detail made my mind race because again, it's one of those small things that reveal a particular mind at work. In isolation, yes, the detail of a soundproof den might be rather innocuous. But when taken in concert with everything else we're learning about him, well, sinister is one word that could potentially be applied here. You should also know that this detail about the soundproof den is something that no one else, to my knowledge, has even talked about. But to be sure, I messaged Gloria. She wrote back with the same question I had. The exact same question I imagine anyone would have. Why was it soundproofed? She also asked if I'd been in the dome houses, to which I said no. But she has, and she added that her friend's cadaver dog had alerted on some cement in the living room. Gloria then reached out to the current owners to see if we could tour the premises. I, for one, would like to see that den. The cliche of, if walls could talk, may fit here. But my overactive imagination wonders what could be inside such thick walls. The Snake River Killer is a production of Resuscitate Media, LLC. I'm the host, Brandon Schrand. Theme music is written and performed by the Young Knight Drifters. Special thanks to Blake Walker, our engineer, associate producers Gloria Boberts and Paul Dale, research assistant Tina Landriotti, graphic designer and investigator Samantha Sawyer, and a special shout out to Jennifer Anderson and Vernon Lott for letting us air portions of their documentary, Confluence. Be sure to check us out online at snakeriverkiller.com where you can find photos, maps, timelines, articles, and other resources connected to these cases next time on the Snake River Killer. The Pacific Theater is definitely a crime scene because some of the evidence, which I can't say specifically what it was, which was found at the location where the two girls were recovered, was from the Pacific Theater. The cemento enamel junction where the enamel meets the roots, it's too bulbous, so it's not a permanent tooth. So my next thought was maybe it's a baby tooth. In Lance's second interview, he does change his timeline. He said that he got back to the theater around 11.30. So I'm at the site where the bodies of Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller were found. I don't know, I just feel this huge crushing sadness. You can only look at murder so long before it starts to wear on you, I think. And uh, I think it's wearing on me.